Let's have a seat. Take our Bibles and join with me, please. 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11. Let me read you a story. A true account of what happened. And by the way, if you're here this morning and did not get the sermon notes that are in the bulletin, the ushers have some, just raise your hand. You can follow along. Write down some of these things. Here's a true story printed in the, uh, by John uh, in, a, in an article in a journal that says this. The chicken gun, some of you heard this, as NASA calls it, has been specifically built to launch a dead chicken at maximum velocity directly into the windshields of airliners, military jets, and even the space shuttle. The idea is to test the strength of the windshield materials in construction by simulating the frequent incidents of collisions with airborne fowl. British engineers heard about the gun and wanted to use it to test the windshield of their newest high-speed train. The gun was sent, the testing site was arranged, the gun was loaded with a dead chicken. When the gun was fired, the engineer stood in shocked silence as the chicken hurtled out of the barrel, smashed through the shatterproof windshield, blasted through the control console, broke the engineer's backrest in two, and embedded itself in the back wall of the cabin. The horrified British sent NASA the disastrous results of the experiment, explaining the design of the windshield, what they had done, and then asked for further suggestions. NASA responded with this one line, next time, thaw the chicken. (laughs) That'll do it, that'll do it. A real cannonball. Directions. Um, sometimes they get really complicated, don't they? And sometimes we don't get the whole thing. Well, 1 Corinthians 11 is a passage about directions. It's about directions about the most important service that a church can hold, communion. In fact, communion is the one service out of all the church service that says when you gather, make sure you do this on a periodic basis. And so in 1 Corinthians 11, there's going to be details given about the communion service that are to be reminded. And by the way... This is written years after Christ has instituted, after it's been practiced for several decades already, that God is leading Paul to write these words to help make sure that people are doing it right because they weren't. Isn't this amazing? One of the most important services, worship services a church can do, and it's done wrong by believers. So we get the directions. And when we start going through 1 Corinthians 11 to find out exactly and to examine ourselves and say, are we doing it the right way? There are several different points that struck me as I went through the entire chapter. I want you to catch this with me this morning. When he is writing about the communion story, the communion instructions, it's in the midst of a chapter where he's correcting a problem in the church. We often just grab the one section that talks about the actual, the actual right of communion where we usually read down to verse 23 down to about verse 32. But that is only part of the, of the bigger context. The bigger context goes a little bit further. It starts with verse 17. And it goes to the end of the chapter. And it talks about in this passage about a problem that was happening in the church. Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not. That you come together not for the good... But when you come together, it's really bad for the worse. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you. I partly believe this. For there must also be heresies among you that they which are approved may be made manifest from among you. But when you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat just the, not just to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, every one takes before others his own supper. One is hungry, another is drunken. What? Have you not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise you the church of God and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? I will not praise you in this. 
I or shall, he says, shall I praise you? I will not praise you in this. And right after that, he goes on and he says, here, let me tell you what I've received of the Lord. And he talks about it. And then, jump down a little bit further, he says, wherefore, verse 33, wherefore, my brethren, after I've given you some comments about communion, when you come together, the next time you do this, to eat, tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, where he's got to eat like, a, you know, like they were doing, let him eat at home, that you come not together unto condemnation. And the rest of this I'll set in order when I come. In this passage, he's revealing to these people that, hey, they've got a problem. A problem where he says, I'm not going to commend you one iota in this. You're going to say, but we celebrate communion. No, 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 no. I'm not commending you. And he says it a couple times. I'm not praising you for getting together to have communion because you're not doing it the right way. And then their problem, exactly, there's an issue here that's going on. And it's basically twofold in the verses that we read. One of it is this, is when they come together to celebrate communion, they are blowing it big time with some of the factions in the church. Now, understand, in the New Testament, when they did communion, they did a little bit different than we do. In the New Testament, when they gathered together, according to Jude, they would get together and they would have an entire meal. They would, they would replicate the Last Supper with all the different meal, the parts of the meal. And then they would conclude with the ordinance here of communion. And so he says, okay, when you get together for these love feasts, he says, you are not doing fellowship. Well, in fact, he says, I know that what's happening when you get together, you're having these different schisms or schisms, however you want to say it. He says, you have factions going on in your church. You're divided. You're not having unity, the thing we've been talking about the last few weeks. He says, when you get together, there's, there's divisions. The word literally means there's cuttings, there's tearings. There's the critical. There's like a hound biting somebody that's ripping at the flesh, that's nipping at the heels. It's, that's what some of you are doing when you get together to worship, Corinth. And he says, that's just wrong. He says, when some of you, you're quarreling. And earlier in the book, he talks about you're quarreling over which is your favorite preacher in the church. He says, some of you are quarreling over money. And even headed for the courts and having these issues. He says, some of you, he'll talk about in chapters 12, 13, 14, you're arguing over who has the better gifts. Who's more gifted by the Spirit? Who's the more spiritual ones? Those with this gift or that gift, whether it be the tongues, which was the common problem there in Corinth, that they were arguing over this whole issue of tongues and he has to spend the most time correcting it. Well, he says, you've got, this, you've got this, this whole faction business, this whole looking down at one another. And some of you who are rich are looking down on the poor, and the poor are looking down on the rich. He says, it's got to stop. It's got to stop. He, he makes a comment in verse 19 that is a very interesting comment. He's, he uses the word in this text, you must, or there must be, something that's happening. Do, do you remember Matthew 18, he says, Jesus is talking, does a similar thing. He says yeah, in this text, there must be stumbling blocks that will come in life. He's making an admission that there are certain things in life that aren't going away. People stumbling one another. And he uses the day there. There must be stumbling blocks. But then he adds, he says, woe unto him who brings the stumbling block to others. It's that same idea where he's not commending it. He's just commenting and says, this is the way life is. People stumble. It's, it's like James 3 that he says, you know, no man can control his own tongue. But you're supposed to give effort to it. He's not saying just give in. There's stumbling blocks that will happen. But woe if you bring them. He used that same concept here. There must be heresies. He's not advocating, but he's saying it's real. There are divisions. There are sects. And it's not just doctrinal. 
Okay, that becomes more developed in history. The word for heresies becomes later on to refer to doctrinal differences. He's just talking about in general there's different groups, there's different cliques, there's different, uh, different sections within the church. He says, I understand there's, gonna, there's going to be some of that, but it's not supposed to be that way. And he goes on, he's basically making this comment. These things do happen. And there's some good that comes out of them. The good is it shows who's really godly. They rise above the fray. They don't continue and carry on the discussions. They don't pass on the, the accusations. He says, okay, so there must be these things. There's going to be some of this conflict because people are sinners. But it's going to prove who in the church is really the spiritual ones. How do they respond to the conflicts? How do they act when somebody is not, is not trying to rectify a situation? The spirits will rise above it. They will be proven or approved in that sense. So he says there's some benefit, but it doesn't mean it's, it's, it should stay. It doesn't mean you work for this. It doesn't mean you try and, and promote somebody's character by attacking. He says that's just wrong. The, schis, the schisms, he goes on, he says there's selfishness in the church, in the church of Corinth. The selfishness was very simple. The selfishness we read, there wasn't even a common courtesy. When they would sit down for the meal, that they would wait for one another. He talks about how you don't tarry, which was a common courtesy of waiting until everybody's there. He says you're, you're eagerly, you're greedily, eagerly, greedily eating without waiting for others. He says you who are rich, you're not sharing, you're despising the poor. You are eating while others are going hungry. You're filling yourselves. And he even makes a comment, some of you are getting drunk. And there's others who don't even have the drink to be there because they're so poor, they're slaves. And you're, you're getting intoxicated because you can. He says, it's just wrong. Do you despise the church, the body of Christ so much? He challenges them. He says, it's just, it, it, it's got to stop. It's got to stop. He says, and one of the areas that you come together is the communion and it's supposed to be a love feast. How dare you call it a love feast where there is no love? Basically what he's telling us is that the actions that the Corinthians were taking were unbecoming of believers in Christ. He's saying that saints are to act holy. That saints are not to despise the body, other saints, in any way, shape, or form. They're to celebrate communion in a way that, that is honoring to Christ, but he, the Corinthians weren't. Everything about the communion service, which pictures fellowship with one another, says you guys aren't doing it. You're pretending, but it's not real. There's the animosity, there's the angst. And what scares me in my own heart is this. We can celebrate this and doing it in such a way that we would offend Jesus Christ. That's a scary thought. A spirit, it's like prayer. The most holy communion we can have with God. He writes and has that whole section in Matthew 6, a sermon Jesus put together, that talks about how you can pray, but you can pray wrong. And so often we say, well, as long as I'm just doing it, anything goes, not with God. Same thing here. Just doing it is not enough. It has to be done by his directions. We have to do it the way he wants. And so then Paul, after pointing out the problems and challenging them and saying, I praise you not, make sure you're doing it right, he goes on and says, you got to do it right. And he has the next section that we typically read, verses 23 and following. Now, what's interesting is his brevity in what he says. Do you, you ever remember this fellow from history? Edward Everett? Do you remember his fame? 
He, back in the mid-1800s, he was the nation's most renowned public speaker. In fact, in November of 1863, he was asked to speak just down the road here when they were commemorating the cemetery at Gettysburg. He was the main speaker that day. He spoke and, and, and did his fill of an hour and 57 minutes. Yeah, you're going, whew. Yeah, you're used to that on a Sunday morning, right? He spoke for an hour and 57 minutes. And the papers, they recorded most all of his speech that day. In most all of the Pennsylvania, Maryland, those press, because they said it was a phenomenal speech. People hung on every word for an hour and 57 minutes. Standing there in the heat. And, well, it was November. The battle was in July. So they, but they, they stood there. They listened to his, his whole speech. And then, as an afterthought, the president had showed up that day. Okay? He had been invited. Wasn't sure he was going to make it. He ended up coming. And so Lincoln stands up and speaks. He speaks for two minutes. When he sat back down, the press corps was heard saying, That's it? That's all he had to say? But to us, was it profound? Do we remember anything that Everett said? We don't even remember Everett. But we memorized this. We learned it. Brief, pungent, to the point. In fact, Everett understood it. The next day he sent the president this note. I should be glad if I could flatter myself that I came as near to the central idea of the occasion in two hours as you did in two minutes. He understood it. Well, Paul in brevity is going to tell us about communion. And what he tells us in communion, I can read faster than we can celebrate it. And he tells us that when we celebrate communion, I want to tell you what Jesus told me personally. Isn't this interesting how he starts off? I have received of the Lord that which I delivered unto you. Now remember, Jesus started the communion service. He instituted it in the, in the night before he died. In the Gospels, we read about it. And it was so important to it, he later reveals it to the Apostle Paul, who is the main writer of New Testament books. And he says, I have had a personal conversation with the Lord that told me what I'm to tell you. So Jesus is really involved in this service. He began it. He's giving instructions, and his instructions are very poignant. They're very simple, they're very clear, they're very direct. When you gather for communion, do this. And he gives us the, the directives. And they are, have you ever read directions that you are more confused after reading them than before? And you look at the picture and go by the picture because the directions do not work. Or am I the only one that is direction dumb? My wife was, well, I was out doing those phenomenal yard sale shoppings, garage sale things, and she found a thing for the grandkids for 50 cents. 50 paper airplane designs for 50 cents. This has caused me more grief <laughs> because it's to the point now when Preston says, let's, let's make a paper airplane, I cringe. And I say, have your daddy do it. And Tony's in the background. <laughs> we can't figure out the directions. In my mind, why can't you just make a simple paper airplane? Why do you have to have it designed and give it names like graffiti and skyrocket and, you know, the skylark and the bazooka? Just fold it once and throw it. 
But you have all these different designs and you've got mountain ridges and valley ridges and this fold and that fold. It is a very, it's causing frustration in our marriage that she bought this thing. <laughs> a paper airplane book that is so confusing. I know some of you who are engineers, I'm going to give this to you and say you design it, you put them together. and bring it. Actually, I, just, I re- reconciled the problem the other day. Now every paper airplane looks exactly the same. Okay, that's it. I'm done with doing the different designs. God says you can't do that with my, with my communion. You can't just say you don't like it the way I'm telling you. You've got to do it my way. And his way is very simple and understandable. Here's what it is. When we gather for communion, the right way to do it is this. Do it. Do it. You don't avoid it. We don't stay away from it. This do, and keep on doing it periodically, do, and he says it's a command. He goes on, he says, as often as you do it, it's an assumption. He assumes that you are participating in communion on a regular basis. You're here, so you're participating. But he's saying in this passage, it's got to be done. He is saying we do it as a church. You do realize communion is not a private home experience. Look at the context. He says on this whole context, when you come together, when you come together, when you come together, he's not saying when you're at home and doing your own thing. In fact, he ends up the chapter and he says, if you hunger, then eat at home. Do your supper at home. But for communion, communion is for a church entity. It is involved with the body of Christ. It is not some private affair. It's to be done when the church gathers, as often as that church gathers uh, or chooses to do it. Do it regularly. As oft as you do it, he says. In, the, in fact, I haven't read the section. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took the bread. When he had given thanks, he break and said, Take, eat, this is my body, this do in remembrance of me. Let me pause there, because some of you have asked me this question. How come in communion sometimes I don't read the line, which is broken for you? Let me, let me reverse that. How many of you have a Bible in your lap that doesn't have that line? How many have an interp- uh, or that they don't put which is broken for you? Nobody? Some of you should have versions that don't have it. It's because it is, one of, it is the only thing in this whole section that is questioned of whether or not it was in the original manuscripts. There is a huge debate that says this shows this was added sometime later, and there's a lot of evidence that it wasn't in the earliest of manuscripts, in the majority of the manuscripts, and that phrase. And that idea comes from John 19, where it says, Not a bone of his was broken. Okay? And so there's questions about it. So, you know, whatever the conclusion is, we're going to find out when we get to heaven. But take, eat, this is my body, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, this do as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. There it is. As oft as you drink it. And then he repeats that. For as oft as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. And so he's making it clear that we can choose how often. Now in the early church, it seems they did it every day. And in time, in Acts chapter 20, they were doing it on Sundays. We choose to do it periodically, typically once a month, that we do communion. But here's the catch, that we do it with the right purpose, the right teaching. 
There are some who would teach that when you gather for communion, the elements are changed into the body of Jesus. So this way, by taking the, the wine or taking the, the juice or taking the crackers, the, the Eucharist in those churches, by taking them, you're bringing Jesus into your body. You're going to get some form of grace. They're going to provision of, of, of forgiveness is going to come through the ceremony. That's not at all what the Bible teaches. This is a uh, time where we are remembering and using by symbols a reflection to look back at what Jesus did. And we use symbols all the time. Symbols that, that give an indication of some status that we have. Many of you have the symbol of the marriage ring. Mine just wore out and broke off. But you have that. It's a symbol. It's not your marriage, but it's symbolizing that commitment that you have. Well, this is a symbol of Jesus' commitment to us. And so we gather together and we reflect. And we talk about the right teaching. We show the Lord's death. We show what he did for us. How he gave his very life. He gave the, his essences there on the cross. His, his breathing. His, his life as he, we know it here on this earth. Was sacrificed for you and me. His spirit suffered separation from the father. In death in that sense of being separated from the father. For several hours on the cross. So that we could have forgiveness. So that we could have hope. And we're picturing what Christ has done for us. Which leads us to say hey wait a minute. This isn't me that gets me to heaven. It's Jesus that gets me to heaven. Why did he have to come, die, bury, and resurrect if I could get to heaven by baptism, by taking communion, by being a good person? I can't, you can't. And this reflects God's payment for our forgiveness. The only payment that he would accept, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, so that we could have forgiveness. We realize when we come to communion, there's nothing we could have done to earn our way to heaven. There's nothing we can do in the future to gain access without Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. So when we come to communion, we've got to come with the right attitude. We come with the right thoughts. We come with the thoughts that, that aren't unworthy that aren't disrespectful, that aren't mechanical, that aren't just going through a ritual, that aren't just, let's move this on so I can go and watch the game. We come with purpose. We come and we say, hey, we come with thanksgiving. That's what this whole idea is. Communion is a thanksgiving service where he talks about the Lord giving thanks. He, we come with reflecting on what Christ has done in remembrance of me, thinking of what I did for you. We come with the idea that we're going to enjoy fellowship one with, with another, but also with Christ. Go to the previous chapter where he's talking about fellowship and the communion table. Chapter 10, he talks about verse 16, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the fellowship of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the fellowship of the body of Christ? And he's challenging the readers in chapter 10 already to say, hey, listen, when you come together, remember that you have a close fellowship with Jesus Christ. I was talking about this early this morning with a family. I mentioned that I'd gotten a call from the state police to go and meet with a family who used to come to our church, who a family member was killed in an auto accident this morning. And sitting on their couch, talking with them, they asked, where is that person? In between the tears and the sobbing, where is she? Do you remember as a youngster, that this person ever prayed and asked Christ to be their Savior. And they were very clear, yes, followed the Lord and believers' baptism. There was a time in life that was very, very focused. But in these last few years, it's not been so focused. Does that mean they're still going to heaven? 
Here's what I can tell you, mom and dad. I can tell you that if that, if that person prayed to get saved and genuinely meant it, ever since that occurred early this morning, they've been in the presence of Jesus Christ. Why is that? Not because of anything they have done or they haven't done. But if they called upon Christ and genuinely understood and meant and asked him to be their savior, that meant that the moment that their body ceased to function, absent from the body is... And I can tell you what they're experiencing right now. They're experiencing, and we've talked about what heaven is like, based on the word of God, how they have mobility, how they're moving about. But it wasn't because of that individual keeping themselves saved. And we talked about how in life there can come a point, even in our families, where loved ones and, and offspring or parents or siblings, all of a sudden there's a, there's a blood relationship. And sometimes the fellowship gets severed, does it not? Sometimes there's conf- conflicts and sometimes there's not talking to each other for a while. But based upon a birth that took place at the beginning of their life, you can never sever the relationship. The blood relationship is a, is a forever in this life relationship. The fellowship might be skewered, but the relationship is permanent. In the same way, when we call upon Christ as our Savior and admit that we are sinners and we need Him as a Savior, we are born again. We become a child of God. And He gives unto us what type of life? Eternal life, which never ends. And so that person who, even in a tragic moment, passes away, if they were born again, they are with Jesus Christ at this moment. They are enjoying and fellowship that they may have laid aside for a period in this life, but they're enjoying that fellowship now with Christ because of a relationship that was established at some point in their life. Does that advocate living a life of sin? Absolutely not. But I do understand that according to the Word of God that people will be saved yet so as by fire, that they will be there because they, are tra- they had trusted in Christ to be their Savior, and that we are kept saved not by ourselves but by God who is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all sins. And so we come this morning and we reflect that we have a relationship with Christ. But by being here this morning we top that by saying not only a relationship that was begun by what Christ did but we have fellowship with him when we do communion. That we gather, we talk, we think that we're, that we, and in our minds we plan a time of worship. And then he goes on, he says, hey, listen, in chapter 10, verse 21, he mentions about being clean. The right attitude, being clean. He says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. So we come to communion with reflecting on what he has done. Thanksgiving for the relationship. Thanksgiving for fellowship. But also we come with purity saying, hey, we're not trying to mix evil with good. We're trying to live consistent lives. We come with an appreciation for the brothers and sisters in Christ where we are one as a body where he talks about being considerate of one another, in fact, that when you gather together next time, he's telling the Corinthians, you wait for one another. You don't despise one another. You treat one another properly. And so the fellowship is reflective of the joy that we have with one another, the the joy of being able to fellowship with you. And so out of respect for one another, we wait until you're all served. And then we ingest at the same time this morning when we come to the crackers, when we come to the juice to indicate that we have fellowship with one another, that this is part of the communion service. 
We come with a willingness to examine our own hearts, which he writes about in chapter 11. For he says, For as oft as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup in an unworthy fashion, not thankful, not rejoicing in what Christ has done, not reflecting on the fellowship with one another or with Christ, having, having uh, a, 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 a conflict with others that's unresolved. They shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. So let him eat of that bread and drink that cup. For he that eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks physical uh, discipline to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. That brings us to this third point. The third point in this passage that the directions were given to curb punishment, to stop the discipline. Because in this area, it was a serious warning. Do you ever read the silly labels we have that warn? The silly labels that on a chainsaw say, don't grab the wrong end. The silly labels for a microwave that say, this is not for drying pets. You read these warnings, you go, really? Does this have to be stated? Does it have to be stated for best results? Take the cover off. Does it have to be stated here on a can of peanuts? Do you have to put the warning label that says caution contains nuts? I mean, what else are you buying? Do you have to have warning labels on a, on a dish that at the bottom of it, it says, do not turn upside down, and the, the warnings on the bottom? Do you have to have this on a warning outfit? I guess so. Okay, you're not enabled to fly because you wear a Superman outfit. Or a hairdryer, warning, do not use when you're sleeping. Seriously? The curling eye, the, the straightener, do not use in the shower. Do you have to give somebody a warning that way? Do you have to give this type of a warning that says that, that here you have this, this meal that you put together? Product may be hot after heating. Really? Seriously? You have to say that? Do you have to give this warning on a child's cough syrup bottle that says, warning, do not drive a car after drinking? <laughs> or do you have to put this one down, this sleep aid? Do you have to put a warning, this product may cause drowsiness? Really? Really? <laughs> Silly warnings that we laugh at, we joke at and say, yeah, right, as if it needed to be stated. This is not a silly warning. 1 Corinthians 11 was written to the teens, to the married folk. To the single adults, it's a serious warning. God told the Corinthians, if you take communion wrong, this is really serious stuff. He says, you are, you are putting yourself in danger of divine discipline. I'm warning you. If you fail to discern the Lord's body, is he talking about the sacrifice of Christ or is he talking about this body? Yes, I guess. He's warning and saying, I am warning you to come to communion, and it is so real. This is, and Paul adds this, this is so serious, some of you are already weak and sickly, and some of you have even died because of communion. Taking communion the wrong way. This is serious stuff. And he goes on, he says in verse 31, if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by God, when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. He's trying to purify us. Man, the, the comment is examine yourself. Curb the punishment by here this morning examining yourself. God gives these directions and what good are they if we don't listen to them? He is writing to tell us that he really thinks this is an important service. Well, if it's important to God, it should be important to us. We've got to do it the right way. We've got to celebrate it the right way. And I invite you who are born again, right with God, right with one another, to join us in this celebration.